You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Thank you for tuning in again to a, another podcast. And today I have the honor of interviewing Michael Fox. And Michael Fox is the founding director of the Center for Brain Circuit Therapeutics at Brigham and Women's Hospital. He's also the associate professor of neurology at Harvard Medical School. He's the inaugural Raymond D. Adams Distinguished Chair of Neurology and the K Family Research Director of Brain Stimulation. He completed his degree in electrical engineering in 2001 at Ohio State University and received his MD PhD at Washington University in St. Louis in 2008 and did a neurology residency and movement disorders fellowship at Mass, Mass General Brigham. Clinically, he specializes, and we'll talk a lot about this, in, in the use of invasive and non-invasive brain stimulation for the treatment of neurologic, uh, neurological and psychiatric symptoms. Since first starting with, with Dr. Rakel's lab when he was a graduate student, Dr. Fox has been active in fMRI, and as a graduate student, he really hit the ground running. He's, he published as first author, as a graduate student, uh, five papers between 2005 and six that, that really got people's attention. And perhaps maybe the most prominent of these was an early paper in PNAS that described how the brain is intrinsically organized into these dynamic anti-correlated networks, which really caused, was one of the main papers that sort of caused resting state fMRI to take off again. It was sort of dormant for 10 years since it was first discovery. So so this paper, while it was seminal, also launched a discussion on that's still ongoing today about the use of global signal regression and other types of regression for time series cleanup. And we'll talk a little bit about that. So one other thing quickly that uh, before we get going, what struck me is that, uh, you know, just looking at his uh, Google Scholar statistics here, I mean, it, he's first author or co-author of, of 10 papers that have near or over a thousand citations. So, and all, all published in this span between 2006 and 2010, which, I, which was, must have been an incredible time, uh, which, but you're not slowing down now. He's actually speeding up in terms of, you know, sort of forging a, an area of, of research that I think not many other clinical fMRI people are doing. So over the years, I've learned quite a bit from his work. And, uh, you know, I've liked his early work, even focusing on the transient signal changes as they relate to bold contrast. But then, so now he's... <laughs> <laughs> he's moved into the area of, that he's uh, pioneering today, identifying, as I mentioned, cortical networks, not just regions identified with pathology and using neuromodulation to either stimulate them or suppress them for therapeutic purposes. And I, I personally think that this is in, an incredibly rich area of research and potential clinical applications, even more so for fMRI. So hopefully we'll cover all these topics. Okay, so, so Michael, welcome, welcome to the podcast. I just want to start out by just a general introduction, how you got started, what motivated you at the beginning, how long you've been interested in, in brain imaging, going in, going from there. Yeah, well, thank you so much, Peter, for inviting me to uh, participate in this podcast. It's an honor to be interviewed and, and wonderful to catch up with you. You know, I, I guess the question of what, what got me started in this area, you know, like most people, it was fortuitous happenstance. So I, I was an electrical engineer um, trying to figure out how you can use an engineering degree to, to best help people. And I'd always been fascinated by neuroscience and the brain. And so um, somewhere I was going to find an intersection between electrical engineering and, and neuroscience. And there are really two areas that I, I thought could be a fit for that. One of them was the um, kind of neuroprosthesis, you know, implanting the electrodes to paralyze people can control robotic arms. And I, I continue to think that's some of the coolest research out there. And the others was, was brain imaging. 
I ended up at Wash U, which is a hotbed of neuroimaging, um, especially at that time. I was walking through the hall and started seeing all these posters being uh, hung up with beautiful pictures of, of brain images, started reading them, and, and I got hooked. And I said, this is, this is absolutely fascinating. And one of those papers happened to be by, by Mark Rakel and uh, on the default mode network, sure enough. And so I was reading the paper and thought this was really interesting and, and looked right next door to the poster and there was a door labeled Mark Rakel. So I said, oh, well, he can answer this question I have about this poster. So sure enough, his door was open and I, I knocked and stuck my head in and, and started asking him questions about the poster. And little did I know that he was Mark Rakel. <laughs> I didn't find that out until later. I had no idea whose door I had knocked on and, and what I was about to, to launch into. Yeah. yeah, no, you were at the, you know, the right place at the right time, but then of course you made the most of it. So, I mean, I can imagine the atmosphere at WashU was, was really nurturing in that regard. I mean, obviously if you're in the MD PhD program, you have only a certain number of years to get your PhD and, and it seems like you could plug into, you know, Corbetta was there and you know, Steve Peterson's still there and all these people are just, thinking about yeah. this and Mark and Joel Perlmutter. And I mean, it was just an unbelievable collection of, of neuroimaging faculty um, with a, you know, awesome collection of neuroimaging graduate students all at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, Damien Fair and Chad Phil Sylvester and B.U. Hay and Garo Patel, and Justin Baker. I mean, it just, um, and, you know, we'd all get together at lunchtime and, um, you know, give each other grief about what, 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 he, what we're working on. And it was just a very, very um, fun intellectual environment to be in, but also a very nurturing one where uh, crazy ideas were expected and encouraged and, um, uh, and everybody collaborated with each other and learned from each other. And so uh, I think all of us were able to accomplish a lot. And, um, you know, you mentioned my publication record from that time period, but, but everybody that was there at WashU during that time period uh, it had exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's so critical, having a critical mass of people or just the right people that are nur both nurturing and, you know, where the ideas are flying around uh, and you have a chance to just try things is, is perfect. Um, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned engineering also that uh, you, you wanted to combine engineering with, with uh, somehow uh, helping people. I, I, I feel like I had some sort of similar feeling or I wanted, I, I came from a physics background, but I wanted to combine physics with with the brain or with, with understanding neuroscience. And so, you know, this intersection of different, you know, sort of a tactical background with, with, with uh, maybe more applications is, is interesting. It's a powerful combination. Um, so, so regarding your, your first, I think it was your first PNAS paper. So um, it, it seems like that was one of the first ones that sort of one of the first from WashU, especially uh, that, that, talked about, you know, further described, took resting state a little bit further and describing these anti-correlated networks. And, and I remember reading that and just thinking and getting really excited. And, and also thinking of, you know, it's interesting though, because that came, you know, almost, you know, a, almost a decade after Brad Biswell first discovered resting state. Why do you think it took so long uh, for resting state to catch on? Um, so. Yeah, I, I, I... You know, I think there's a lot of reasons. I, I'd be actually really curious to hear what Barat thinks, um, but I can tell you what I think. It, and it, it's, if you look at the papers between, you know, Barat's seminal 1995 publication and, you know, kind of when, when everybody jumped into the field, um, which is around 2005, a lot of the papers were focused on um, why it's an artifact, why it's a confound, why it's just, 
you know, vascular fluctuations in a, a hemodynamic epiphenomenon. Um, and a lot of those papers were right um, because part of what we were looking at um, was a vascular epiphenomenon and part of it was probably neuronal. And so I, I, I was not the first person actually at WashU to, to try and do this. Um, multiple labs had played around with resting state functional connectivity and certainly um, were aware of Barat's work. It's just every time they tried to generate a map, everything was correlated with everything and it didn't look like um, neuroanatomical specificity. It didn't look like a signal that was gonna be useful. Um, it looked like artifact. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I think that what really opened our eyes was actually uh, Michael Gracious's paper. Um, and I still remember the day, I, as you mentioned, I was working on transients, right? These little signals that happen when you go into or come out of a task block. Right. And I, I still remember Mark Rakel walking out of his office and he had printed out Mike Gracious's paper. And Avi Snyder and I were sitting there, you know, brainstorming about something or another. And he slammed it down on the desk and he's like, we got to do this and we got to do this now. <laughs> and, and the reason it was so important, um, obviously, one, Michael uh, had shown the default mode network. But, but more importantly, the default mode network, the regions within it were all in different vascular territories. And yep. there was no way that that pattern could have come out of hemodynamic fluctuations based on respiratory or cardiac artifact. Yep. Um, and so once Mike um, published that paper, we were convinced it had to be real and there was real signal in there. We just had to find it. Yeah. Um, and so that, that's when Avi Snyder and I launched into, okay, let's take some resting state data and literally process it a thousand different ways. Um, and, you know, we process it, we take a look, oh, it doesn't look like anything, process it again, take a look, doesn't look like anything. And I remember the day we tried this global signal regression and, and this wasn't a new idea, right? People had used global signal regression for task-based imaging before and, you know, global normalization in PET was, was standard. Um, but once we regress up this global signal, all of a sudden, these maps were just an order of magnitude cleaner than anything we had seen previously. Yeah. You could drop a seed in a motor system, beautiful motor system pops out, drop it anywhere in the default mode network, beautiful things popped out. Um, and so it, it, it was that processing step that for us really changed the signal to noise and really changed the neuroanatomical specificity in a way that we believed what we were seeing. Yeah, yeah. And so, 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 right. I, yeah, I remember looking at, at Gracious's paper as well. And, and uh, yeah, that was actually, yeah, I remember also, um, you know, it's funny too. It's also an, an idea of, uh, you know, knowing where to look and how to look and um, yeah, being able to sort of realize, hey, there's more than just motor cortex that's correlated and, and it's interesting and it's relevant and you can, you know, devise the story. So along the lines of, of global signal, of course, uh, you know, we won't, spend too much time talking about this because it's still an ongoing sort of thing. But I mean, the paper sort of did, you know, they uh, introduced some uh, concerns and you'd since written a consensus paper with uh, uh, Kevin Murphy, who uh, was on the other side of this argument in some sense of, of saying, look, you know, global signal regression, if you do global signal, mathematically, it sort of induces uh, certain areas to be negatively correlated. But I think the key thing that you mentioned in that consensus paper is that yes, that might be the case, but they have to be, you know, they have to be large enough in some sense. If they're larger, uh, the uh, uh, something to do with what fraction of the overall signal is the area that you're looking for. And it seems like while it does, it might do that. I think I thought the paper was written really. I just had it. I just re-looked at it the other day and uh, uh, and and today as well. Uh, just and it seems that it it it, it paints it in, the, in a way that. And, and obviously you can talk about this too more, but uh, 
it's global single definitely cleans things up. Uh, at the same time, the more we look at all the interesting fluctuations in fMRI, uh, the more we realize that that yeah, there's there's layers and layers of connectivity uh, that that you know you might want to take out, you might not want to take out, depending on what your question is. So I don't know if you wanted to talk. And a I bit. think that's that's the critical take home point. You you articulated it very very nicely. Is um, you know if you want to take it out or you don't want to take it out, it, it does depend on your question. And um, I, I think um, you know I was really really happy that Kevin reached out to me and that we had the opportunity to write that that consensus paper together because. Um, there was a little bit of a, you know, he said, she said going on where, you know, it was, oh, this group, um, and it, you know, became a group of 20 people think that you have to do global signal regression. This group of 20 people think that it, you absolutely cannot do it or your results are invalid. And papers were getting rejected because they did it or didn't do it, depending on the reviewer. Yeah. And Kevin and I got together and said, this is not, this, this isn't okay. This isn't a, a productive way to move the field forward. And like most processing pipelines or steps, um, there's not a right or a wrong way to do it. Um, and the analogy, and I think we used it in that paper, is uh, anybody that does EEG as a neurologist, there are many different ways you can montage the EEG signal. And one of the standard ways is to do an average reference, which is effectively removing the global signal from yep. EEG. But you never would hear multiple neurologists get in a room and fight about what the correct way to montage an EEG is. And, and the reason is that because they, they have a gold standard, right? The right way to montage the EEG is the way that shows you the seizure. Yes. The problem with functional connectivity is we didn't have a, um, a gold standard, right? We didn't have a seizure that we were looking for. So what's the right way to montage the resting state signal? Well, it depends on your question. Yeah. It depends on what you're, you're, you're looking for. Um, and we know that part of the global signal is neuronal, um, probably related to large arousal systems. Yep. And so if you're interested in arousal systems, if you regress out the global signal, you're going to miss it. Yep. But if you're not interested in these large fluctuations in arousal or fluctuations in you know, sleep and wake states that probably happen when you're in the resting state MRI scanner, um, then you probably do want to remove that stuff and look at the layer underneath. Yeah. Um, and that tends to give you an increased neuroanatomical specificity for a lot of the questions that you're looking at. Yeah, um, um, but again, it's, it's, there's not a right way or a wrong way. You just need to understand what you're doing and the implications of what you're doing on the signal that you see. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I completely, I completely agree. And, um, you know, hopefully in the future we'll have, you know, better ways of, of, you know, better algorithms for sort of teasing out, you know, what's, what's, you know, general arousal, what's specific activity, what's, you know, correlated activity that might not be arousal, it might be just purely hemodynamic or whatever. And I think that we're, you know, it's funny, that's the one thing cool about fMRI is that we're still at the state of, of just in the, in the middle of trying to, you know, develop the tools, develop the external measures to sort of figure this out. And, and we're sort of forging more gold standards in some sense uh, uh, to, to compare against as well. Yeah, and that's kind of where we've gone more recently, which is, um, you know, I mentioned that the right way to montage an EEG is the way that shows you the seizure. Um, a lot of the work we've been doing with brain lesions and with brain stimulation um, makes use of anti-correlations and global signal regression. And so, um, you know, one of the answers I oftentimes give people is, I don't care if the anti-correlations are an artifact, if it tells me where to hold a TMS coil, right? It might be an epiphenomenon. It might have nothing to do with what we think we're measuring. 
But in the end, if it gives me something clinically useful that either tells me what symptoms a lesion is going to produce or tells me where I should, you know, put a stimulating coil or stimulating electrode, then it becomes useful. Um, just like the EEG montage that shows you the seizure. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So, um, and that's a perfect, that's a perfect, uh, 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 segue into, into your current work right now. So you, after Wash U, you, you came to Boston and, uh, and so you first, you collaborated with MGH, you collaborated with a lot of people there and, and now you're, you're established where you are right now. And, and so, um, uh, maybe in a little bit, we'll talk about, you know, uh, the, the dynamics of being a clinician, uh, scientist in that regard. Uh, but, uh, but why don't we, uh, first just step right into, you know, what you're pioneering now, what you're working on now. It seems that I was sort of trying to look at the, uh, once again, your papers to see the history of, of how this evolved in some sense. And it, it sort of led me back to about maybe about 2012, where, where you were exploring TMS for, you know, trying to understand TMS for, for alleviating depression um, and, and finding these, these networks. And, and more recently, you, you have a paper which you show like, you know, very uh, Alzheimer's as well with, you know, networks as well. But, but let's just go back to that TMS. I mean, this, so once again, for, first of all, uh, uh, a common practice, it seems like it's, it's FDA approved is using TMS in the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex to treat, to treat depression. Um, so to begin with that, uh, and obviously in the distant past, and I don't even know if it's still used today. I mean, people have done and this is where it ties into TMS, electroconvulsive therapy, um, which is sort of you know pretty primitive and violent, and uh, and this might be a, a, is this? Do you think it's more you know focused and less you know violent form of that, or uh, is there you know maybe you can talk a little bit also about the mechanisms of what TMS is doing and and how it's being therapeutic? Yeah, sure. So. Um... Yeah, like you mentioned, I moved from WashU to Boston for my neurology training, and, and I kind of had a skill set um, coming out of WashU uh, where I was thinking all about brain networks, brain circuits. Wow, for the first time, we can actually see how the brain is wired up and, and the functional relationships between, between areas. And then I became a, a neurology resident and realized that not a single one of my patients cared <laughs> that we can now see how the brain is wired up and the functional relationship between brain regions. And so it, it seemed like we had this very, very powerful tool um, at our disposal as, as brain imagers. And I needed to figure out what, what a, a use for it was going to be. We had this really cool hammer. And so I went, went looking for nails and said, what, what are the clinical problems that need to be solved? And one of the areas that seemed like this could be a good fit for was brain stimulation. Um, one is, is as I started doing my clinical training, um, seeing both Parkinson's patients with DBS electrodes, but then also um, patients with depression uh, that got TMS or, or you mentioned electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. It, in certain cases, it can seem like a miracle treatment. Um, these are patients that have responded to, to no medications or the medications have stopped working. And the idea that we could go in and basically hotwire their brain or manipulate a specific circuit and, and have the symptoms just melt away as an as a electrical engineer, right? That was just the coolest thing I'd ever heard of. Yeah. Um, and the clinical problem was nobody really knew how the treatment worked or where you needed to administer the treatment. Um, so in the case of ECT or electroconvulsive therapy, we had this treatment that worked really, really well. And believe it or not, that still is our most effective treatment 
for severe depression and actually multiple other psychiatric indications. Wow. Um, now the problem is you're stimulating the entire brain. You're causing a seizure. So it works, but you're resetting everything. Yeah. Um, so you have to undergo anesthesia. Um, there's a decently high rate of cognitive or memory side effects from causing these seizures every couple of days, but it does work. So the idea of TMS was, gee, ECT seems to work really well, um, but when you stimulate the entire brain, there's a decent amount of side effects. What if we just stimulate the part of the brain we think is involved in depression? Can we fix depression without all the side effects of ECT? Yeah. Um, and they're launched TMS for depression and starting with Mark George and Alvaro Pascalione, you know, trying TMS to the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. And I was lucky to be able to work with Alvaro um, when I came to Boston and start thinking through these ideas of, wow, you got this really cool treatment, um, but we don't really know exactly where in the frontal cortex that TMS coil needs to be held. Maybe this functional connectivity uh, brain mapping tool can, can help us sort that out. Yeah. Um, and it really was a kind of perfect combination where, you know, Alvaro had just decades of experience thinking about TMS and depression and brain circuits. Um, you know, and I, I came out of WashU with some imaging expertise and how we look at brain circuits and, and away we went. Yeah, yeah. And, and, uh, and so um, just for the general audience, uh, so, the, so TMS is essentially like, right, these, these coils that, that rapidly change uh, uh, current direction, that induce magnetic fields that, that rapidly change enough to cause neurons to depolarize uh, uh, in a sense. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's a big electromagnet. We hold it up to the side of the scalp. It creates a rapidly changing magnetic field. And, you know, you mentioned electrical engineering. If you've got electrical wire sitting in a changing magnetic field, it's going to induce an electrical current, that underlying wire. In this case, the underlying wire is somebody's brain cells. Yeah. And so when we discharge this electromagnet over and over again, we actually create an electrical current in the underlying brain tissue. And when we do this again and again, day after day, we can manipulate the activity in a specific brain circuit um, underneath the TMS coil. Yeah, it's interesting. So it's talking about manipulating the activity. And, and um, so it seems that, right, high frequency, like above five hertz, is, is more of a stimulation. It's more of an excitation. And then below one hertz is more of an inhibition. Uh, is that generally the rule or is that? Uh, uh... So that's the rule for primary motor cortex. So most of what we know about the physiology of TMS and the, these change in magnetic fields comes from motor cortex because we can more easily measure the effects. Yeah. Um, specifically, when you take a, a TMS coil, hold it over motor cortex and discharge it, that electrical current you induce uh, results in a twitch. And so you can discharge the magnet and actually see a patient twitch. Yeah. Um, when you then uh, give repetitive TMS pulses at a high frequency, like you mentioned, above five hertz, and you do that for 20 minutes, and then you give another pulse of TMS, well, now the twitch is bigger. And yeah. so we say, oh, that must be exciting the brain. If you do TMS at a lower frequency, and then you give another pulse, the twitch is less. We said, oh, that must be inhibiting the brain. Um, but really, that's just measuring motor cortex physiology. We don't really know if that's the same effect when you move the coil to the frontal cortex or to the cerebellum or to other brain regions. Yeah. Um, and in fact, we, we have some evidence that that might not be the case. And it, it's not as simple as um, you're exciting the tissue or inhibiting the tissue. I think yeah. the only thing that people have, have begun to understand, um, and this is where functional connectivity comes in, is that the focus of brain stimulation, both for deep brain stimulation or for transcranial magnetic stimulation, is moved away from the focus of the stimulation site by itself 
and what are we doing to the tissue right underneath the coil? And it's moved to look at what that stimulation site is connected to. And it's what are we doing to the network of regions that are connected to our stimulation site, not just the site. Yeah. And depending on those network effects and what the site's connected to, you know, 10 hertz TMS might be excitatory or might be inhibitory. Interesting. And, and depending on, right, which what node does what. And, and so you were looking at, uh, so for instance, uh, when you did dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, it was if, you, if the resting state sort of negative correlation with uh, subgenual uh, cingulate, um, maybe it implies that you're stimulating this, but then suppressing uh, that, that node in some sense. And so there might be uh, uh, both inhibitory or excitatory connections between these networks in some sense. So. Um, yeah, that was, that was kind of our initial um, uh, simple conceptualization. That's right. how we pitched it in, in 2012 was, yeah. you know, hey, we think of high frequency TMS as excitatory. It's anti-correlated to these limbic regions that we think are overactive. Ah, that makes perfect sense. You excite this area, you're gonna suppress the anti-correlated area and limbic system goes down, depression gets better. Yeah. So how's that, how's that advanced in recent, recent times now? You know, I, I, it's still a conceptually appealing thing. And I, I do believe that the area of the frontal cortex that is anti-correlated with the limbic system is a useful target. So I think these anti-correlations are telling us something very important about where um, we need to target the TMS. Um, the idea that all TMS is doing is suppressing the things that are anti-correlated to the stimulation site, I think that's probably an oversimplification. Um, you know, exactly how TMS is working, what it's doing mechanistically that provides the antidepressant response is almost certainly going to be more complicated than that. Um, and part of the reason we know it is that um, when we tried subgenual DBS for depression and we directly stuck electrodes in the subgenual cingulate, we were able to shut that off in lots and lots of patients, a lot of whom did not get better from their depression. Yeah. And so just shutting down the limbic system by itself didn't seem to be sufficient. And so um, it's a network effect. Yes. And what exactly the network effect is, are we just defibrillating an abnormal oscillation? Are we changing the balance between regions? Are we changing the functional relationship? So I, I think that the, the how question is got such a large parameter space that it's gonna take us a long time to figure it out. Um, functional connectivity gives us insight into the where. And that's a simpler question with a much smaller parameter space that I think uh, we have a chance of answering. And if we can answer that question, then it at least constrains um, uh, how many experiments we have to do to begin to understand the how. Yeah, and the bottom line, it's, uh, you know, you, you're able to see immediately if there's, you know, which patients have a therapeutic benefit or not um, uh, as you go along. Uh, how long, so this, you know, this is a question that comes up in my mind um, a lot is how long does this effect last? I mean, of course there's an acute effect of, of TMS, but, um, and then some people feel that, you know, it suppresses metabolism for maybe 20 minutes or so. And, but then, but then how does it have long-term effects? I mean, what's really, what do you think is happening? Yeah. So, you know, my, my analogy that I often use is um, a, a cardiac arrhythmia. And I think that that might be the closest analogy we have to, to how we think about it, where there, there's, um, for whatever reason, uh, an abnormal oscillation that's been set up in the brain, an abnormal rhythm, an abnormal balance. Um, in the case of tremor, you can actually see the abnormal oscillation, right, in somebody's hand. Yeah. Um, but psychiatric disease might, might have something like that as well. Um, we then need to intervene on the abnormal circuit to somehow break that pathological oscillation. Yeah. And we can break it with ECT, 
where we defibrillate everything. Or we can break it with TMS, where if we administer these electromagnetic pulses to the right circuit, we can break that abnormal oscillation. And there you go, we, we kind of snap you out of that arrhythmia. Um, now, uh, that doesn't happen right away. Um, most people don't start responding to TMS until about three weeks of stimulation. So this isn't kind of a acute bang, you're out. Um, it takes a while, and we usually do six weeks. And then once we're successful, or if we are, we're not successful in everybody, but if we're successful at, at breaking them out of their depression, um, they stay out for variable periods of time. Uh, some patients, uh, it goes away for six months, and then they're calling us again saying the depression's back, and then we treat them again, and we can pop them out of depression again. Other patients, we pop them out, and they're out for five or 10 years. Um, and again, it's the same thing with a cardiac arrhythmia. You can, you know, break someone out of that arrhythmia and maybe they're out for six months and maybe they're out for 10 years. Um, you can also go in and figure out exactly what circuit in the heart is responsible for that cardiac arrhythmia and actually ablate that circuit. Um, and, and that's where we're going with brain disease is if we can figure out exactly where the circuit is, then maybe it's not a defibrillation like ECT. Um, maybe it's a, you know, lesion to the circuit that then prevents it forever. That's, that's interesting. That's really interesting. The whole idea that the networks are, are, you know, fall into these states that you can sort of tweak, tweak the state out of, especially if it's a pathological state. So it's, that's interesting. Are there any, so I was planning on asking this later, but, but I think it's worthwhile now. Are there any other uh, neuromodulation methods uh, that, that you're thinking? I mean, of course there's, there's TDCS and there's, focused ultrasound that's sort of maybe only for research, but um, there's even all, all kinds of things, um, you know, uh, vagal nerve stimulation, whatever. So are there other things that you're thinking of in terms of uh, specifically hitting these networks? And, and do, you, do you think that, I mean, right now, this, the, the clinical part is just hitting, hitting the node to the network and, and, and hoping to, to change something. And, but, you know, one can, you know, develop the science of sort of, you know, network neuroscience, like, you know, Danny Bassett, for instance, has been, you know, studying, you know, studying networks for a long time. And she's sort of like thinking of how, what's the best node or what's the best way to tweak the network to sort of change its properties. Are you thinking along those lines? So the different simulation methods, maybe multiple stimulation or, or uh, the science of network neuroscience in some sense. Yeah, yeah. So uh, a lot of questions there. Um, I, I'd say I'll leave the science of network neuroscience to people smarter than me, like Danny Bassett. <laughs> um, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm a clinician, right? And so I'm, I'm more just looking for where's my therapeutic target and what, what, um, what therapeutic modalities make sense based on the clinical needs. Um, and there we have began thinking about a lot of different neuromodulation techniques. Um, one that you mentioned, TDCS, transcranial direct current stimulation, uh, does not have any FDA approved indications yet. Um, it has a very weak effect on the brain compared to DBS or TMS. In fact, the effect is so weak that there are a lot of people that don't believe there's any effect at all. Um, and there's something to that argument. Um, but the reason we got interested in it is if um, the therapeutic target is a brain network, not an individual brain region, then a question that oftentimes comes up is why are we targeting individual regions? Why are we sticking our DBS electrodes in one spot? Why are we holding our TMS coil in one spot? Shouldn't we be going after the entire network simultaneously? And that's very hard to do with DBS, uh, although people are doing it, putting in four electrodes or eight electrodes even, 
Um, people are doing multifocal TMS. Um, in fact, I, I participated in a multifocal TMS trial for Parkinson's disease. But transcranial direct current stimulation is just these little wet sponges. And you can put as many on the head as you need to try and stimulate a pattern. Um, we've only run one experiment with it where we tried to stimulate the motor network, again, because you can measure the effect and measure the twitch. And we did see a much, much stronger result when we targeted the entire circuit than when we targeted one brain region. Um, now, that hasn't taken off. A lot of people haven't tried to replicate that or use network targeted stimulation to go after other brain networks. Um, and, and I don't know why that is either. People have done it. It didn't work. Um, you know, in our case, we moved on to other things. And so we never did the network targeted stimulation. But I, I still think that's a promising avenue of investigation. Okay. Um, the other new technologies that are coming out, one that I'm very excited about is MRI guided focus ultrasound. Um, this is FDA approved for Tremor, um, where you basically use um, a bunch of ultrasound transmitters in an MRI scanner, and you can burn a very small hole um, wherever you want near the center of the brain. And so you can burn a hole in the thalamus and get rid of tremor. And when it first came out, I said, oh, this is nuts. We already did a head-to-head -head trial of lesions versus DBS in DBS1. Why would anybody want to go back to lesions? And I was very against focus ultrasound. Um, and then what happened is I kept seeing the patients want it. And time and time again, the patients were choosing it despite people saying very clearly DBS is better um, and, and finally, um, the patients forced me to open my eyes and say, in the end, I like DBS, um, but the patients don't really want electrodes in their head and battery packs in, the ch in their chest for the rest of their life. It's one they would the rather get a small hole uh, burned in their brain and be done with it. Yeah. And, and as I saw where neuromodulation is going, um, which is, you know, psychiatric indications and more difficult patient populations and addiction and, you know... Uh, to put DBS electrodes in a patient with obsessive compulsive disorder, for example, um, I understand why we do it because these patients really don't have any other treatment. But if you had to choose whether you wanted to do DBS electrodes or a lesion, and we can figure out exactly where the lesion needs to be, patients are going to choose a lesion every single time. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I think that has got a, um, a very bright future if we can use brain imaging to refine the technology to figure out exactly where the circuit is and exactly where that lesion needs to go. Cause once you lesion, there's no going back. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. It, it, this reminds me. So it, it seems that I, and I haven't been following focus ultrasound, but it seems like it has more potential for being accurate than, than even, you know, what's been used for years is like a, you know, gamma knife or, or something like that. I mean, it's, it seems like it's more accurate than that um, uh, from what you're it seemed to be implying. Yeah, but potentially. I mean, it's image guided, right? So, so you could say that uh, radio frequency ablations are the most accurate, right? You go in with an electrode, you measure the neuronal activity, and then you ablate where you're measuring the abnormal oscillation. So I, I think nobody would argue that RF ablations are not accurate. Um, that being said, they're not image guided. You're not doing it real time in an MRI scanner. Right. Um, so I think the real time in an MRI scanner is an advantage. Gamma knife is similar to focus ultrasound. Uh, but with the radiation, you have less control over the lesion. The lesion can grow over time or shrink over time um, in a way that, that is, is harder to predict and harder to control. Yeah. Um, with, I want to make a big caveat. I'm not an expert in either gamma knife or focus <laughs> ultrasound. Um, you know, these, these are the <laughs> physicists and the surgeons. And um, you know, I, I'm, I'm the expert in the brain circuit analysis, trying to yeah. figure out where the lesion should go. 
Yes. Uh, but I'm happy with either of those technologies. <laughs> and they give us a very precise way to burn a hole. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, no, that's that's fair enough. Right, I mean, we're, it, it still seems like, I mean, it's sort of an exciting area where, where it seems like, you know, sometimes a field seems like it, it levels out and then it sort of explodes with all these other options. And, you know, even like, you know, I've even looked at recent studies of, uh, photobiomodulation where, where, you know, people are giving infrared light and, and, you know, for, but not, but not focused in, in any sort of way, but so, so, um, okay. So, uh, so in recent years, you, you've been really, uh, sort of, you know, publishing, publishing a lot of papers on various symptoms, uh, various, various pathologies, uh, all kinds of things of looking at the network, the, how the networks relate to certain pathologies, how TMS intervention sort of helps them. Uh, which ones, so it seems that depression works very well. What, what are the other ones uh, that, that work, that lend themselves to this approach? Uh, yeah, so we mentioned um, a TMS for depression and, and figuring out where do we need to hold the TMS coil. But um, in all cases, what we need is a therapeutic target, right? So it, it doesn't matter you know, if it's DBS, TMS, or the next new neuromodulation technology to come to market tomorrow, the problem is going to be the same of where do we go? Where do we administer? Where's our therapeutic target? And um, that question is actually part of what motivated me to pursue brain imaging in the first place. Um, and I, um, I think one of the things that made me stop and, and pause was um, despite, you know, at this point, 30 or 40 years of functional neuroimaging, we don't have a lot of success stories where we can say, hey, we used um, this, this PET technique or fMRI technique or resting state fMRI technique, and we saw this in the brain and that became a successful therapeutic target. Um, I think the subgenual cingulate and depression and Helen Mayberg's work, a lot of people were thinking that was gonna be the big success story of, of functional neuroimaging. Um, and I, I think it highlights uh, a potential weakness of functional neuroimaging, which is in the end, we're looking at neural correlates of the symptoms that we're interested in. And yeah. that can be totally fine if what we want is a biomarker or a risk model or a predictor. But if you want a therapeutic target, this causality issue becomes a big, big deal where that neuroimaging correlate could be causing the symptom or compensating for the symptom or just a risk factor for the symptom. Yes. And so we actually turned our focus away from neuroimaging correlates to causal sources of information and, and brain lesions are, are the number one. So when you mention all these different articles and all these different symptoms, um, almost all of those articles are, are focused around brain lesions. Okay. And, and the reason is that um, lesions, yes. you know, it seems old school, but the lesions give us this causal link yes. uh, to the symptom. It's just, we've never really been able to make sense of the lesions because there are lots of different locations that are all causing the same symptom. And so, um, you know, with Aaron Bose, one of my fellows at the time, we, we developed this um, lesion network mapping um, idea, where you could take the wiring diagram that we get from the human connectome, take the lesions, line the two up, and figure out what brain circuit these different symptoms map to. Yes. And our hope is that because we're using lesions that cause the symptom, that causal mapping will have a higher hit rate of translating into effective therapeutic targets than the neuroimaging correlates. Now, yeah. we don't know if that'll be the case, only time will tell. Um, but that's why we've been so focused on the lesion work um, is, is we're hoping that using lesion-based localization will start spinning off some targets that are, that are effective. 
Yeah. So what you what you basically do then is find a lesion, and then in a uh, a normal set of uh, resting state scans, you 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 know take a seed voxel and see what the network is associated with that lesion in that regard. So exactly. Yeah, and and I my main uh, so right. So my my thought is I, I've seen other papers where they talk about you know how how disorders converge on certain networks, and there's always a risk that there's you know overlap of disorders. Uh, you know you have a lesion that might be you know with within one network or it might be in, with another network. It all depends on how you can actually orthogonalize these networks in some way. Um, but yeah, no, but so far though, it's, it, it also depends. Yeah, I was gonna ask you as well, uh, you know, um, instead of using functional MRI as a way of mapping the you know, seed voxel in that area, um, how does, for instance, using DTI, like, you know, having, you know, tractography maps, uh, how, how do those two compare? Um, yeah. So there's a really nice paper uh, by Maurizio Corbetta is the last author and Michelle Thibault de Chatton's on it as well, where, where they looked at, you know, lesions versus structural connectivity versus resting state connectivity um, and, and which one best predicts lesion induced symptoms. And so um, I think that that more work like that is needed to compare these different approaches because um, I think they're complementary. Um, now, the exact way they did it, we disagreed with and we uh, there'll be a couple more letters coming out in brain where we you know, take the same data set and use our approach versus their approach. And, um, but I think it's, it's a very powerful article in the sense that we need to start comparing these different techniques and seeing where one's good and where one's not. Just like that global signal regression uh, question you brought up earlier. Um, the reason I focused on the resting state is one, you use what you know. And I know a whole lot more about resting state than I do about DTI. But the other one is theoretical, which is we know that the effects of a lesion are polysynaptic. Um, or the effects of brain stimulation are polysynaptic. I mentioned that TMS coil that makes you twitch, you know, that's multiple synapses away, um, you know, from the TMS coil. And so um, we know that the brain stimulation and the lesion effects are polysynaptic. So I wanted a technique that would show me these polysynaptic relationships and, and resting state functional connectivity gives us that. Yeah. Um, the other piece of it is, um, I do believe that resting state gives us uh, a hook on the functional relationship between the regions, right? So, so to give an example, um, lesions that cause visual hallucinations are anti-correlated with the extra stride visual cortex, right? And so if you think that there is um, something to these anti-correlations, then if you lesion one area of the brain and it releases the extra stride visual cortex because they're in a you know, mutually inhibitory relationship, then a lesion causing visual hallucinations by releasing the extra stride visual cortex, it starts to make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, and there's no way that you'd be able to see that type of functional relationship with DTI. Yeah. Um, so I think DTI has is, is got a role to play. I think when lesions hit a single connection like the corticospinal tract, DTI works really, really well, right? Um, but when it's a more complicated symptom, uh, symptom or network that's polysynaptic, um, I think their resting state is going to show us things that DTI can't. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I, um, in that regard, I think that, uh, yeah, it's interesting how I mean it's 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 still an ongoing source of of work to try to figure this out, and also it's sort of the question that sort of arises as well is like on what spatial scale. I mean, we're lucky in some sense that the spatial scale uh, uh, that we're looking at now seems like it's a, effectively maps out these networks, but you can imagine, you know, networks having a lot more detail, you know, the more finely you look, the more detail there is. And, and especially that becomes apparent at subcortical areas, you know, moving things just a little bit makes a huge difference. But you can imagine also just, 
you know, even potentially looking at, you know, uh, cortical layers and output versus input and all kinds of things. So it seems like it would benefit from even higher resolution fMRI in that regard. A hundred percent. In fact, I just finished citing all of your layer specific uh, connectivity information in a grant where I, I think the, the exciting thing about this, um, you know, lesion network mapping or stimulation site network mapping is that it scales with improvements in the connectome. So, so as we go beyond, you know, the you know, genome superstruct project of Randy Buckner to the human connectome project, resting state data set to, you know, polarized light imaging um, to layer specific fMRI. I think every advance in our wiring diagram of the human brain, we can go back and use these same lesions, reanalyze it and gain additional insights, right? So, you know, our current resting state connectome, we don't have directionality. We don't know, you know, in theory, the lesion should have a directional effect on the extra stride visual cortex, but not in reverse. Um, right. right now we can't see that, um, but I think um, you know, connectomes that are based on multi-echo sequences, um, layer specificity, I think all of those are going to be um, very valuable for um, reanalyzing the lesion data sets, the TMS data sets, the DBS data sets. Um, and so these, these causal sources of information that we're compiling, um, you know, the reason we're doing it is so we can combine it with each advance in the connectome. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of work to be done, but but I think that there's it's nice because it seems like there's still interesting, uh, you know, hopeful sort of immediate uh, goals to sort of strive for, and I, I and that's that's awesome. Um, uh, we're starting to run short on time, but I just wanted to just cover maybe two quick things. Um, uh, also, in the in, in the in sort of like the popular press, you got uh, you were you were featured by uh, uh, sort of revealing a network related to consciousness. Um, <laughs> I remember seeing, seeing your name there and I'm thinking, okay, so, and it's really interesting because, I mean, it was a, uh, it was a great, great paper, uh, but I think that's, that um, obviously popular press blows things up like, like crazy all over the place, but, uh, but essentially if, if you might want to describe briefly what you found, like there are these lesions that were very close to each other, but that were, that were different for people who were in a coma state versus not. And so, yeah, exactly. It was, um, you know, you know, the, the term coma doesn't really generate press. The term <laughs> consciousness will generate a ton of press. But, but in the end, all we were studying were lesions that cause coma yeah. versus other brainstem lesions that do not cause coma. Yeah. Um, and what's the difference between the two? And so you can map out the local neuroanatomy and you can say, ah, you know, here's where in the brainstem these lesions are, are intersecting that, that cause versus don't cause coma. And we're not the first to go ahead and look at that. Um, one of the things that we did slightly differently is to say, okay, and what are they connected to? Yes. And when we looked at that, it was really interesting where the lesions that were causing coma uh, were connected to the anterior insula and this kind of pregenual anterior cingulate, which are these areas that are, you know, supposedly involved in interoception and awareness. And, and so the way we kind of thought about the result was, hey, wow, these lesions in the brainstem that are knocking out arousal seem to be uniquely connected to the areas in the brain that are involved in awareness. And so, you know, many people define consciousness as arousal plus awareness, and we were linking up the two. Yeah. Uh, and so we, we, we found it interesting. Now, did we find the seat of human consciousness? <laughs> Highly unlikely. Um, but, but I do think that um, the, 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 the take home point is that patients with disorders of consciousness, with lesions um, that, that cause coma or lesions, we, we did a follow-up paper on lesions that cause loss of consciousness. Um, I do think if you're interested in consciousness, 
That's one of our best sources of data for working out the relevant neuroanatomy is a patient with focal damage that lost consciousness. Yes. Yeah. No, that's that's just wonderful. I'm uh, brilliant. You know, really nice, clear uh, sort of work. Uh, that's you know, and I think that right where those circuits are are extremely important and just pinpointing that is. I mean, obviously, the next step would would be to go in and try to stimulate if people are in the coma, you know, coma states and try to wake them up in some sense and. Yeah, it's, it's funny, like I, I have good friends and colleagues that are doing that work right now, actually with focus ultrasound aiming at the, at the thalamus. And um, one of the things that did not come out in any of our consciousness papers based on lesions is the thalamus. Um, and so from our lesion work, um, you know, there are other therapeutic targets that come out. Actually, the clostrum pops out. Wow. Um, but, okay. but, but, but the thalamus did not. And I, I'm not sure what to make of it. Right. It doesn't mean that the thalamus won't be a good therapeutic target. Um, but that's not something that I would have gone after based on our lesion work. That's interesting. That's interesting. Okay. Well, um, so, uh, all right. So just to, just to wrap up a little bit. So, um, uh, uh, so your day-to-day, -day, so just to, one question and then a future question, uh, your day-to-day -day work, uh, you pretty much, um, you know, as a clinician scientist, I always, I always talk to people who, you know, who are thinking of getting an MD or a PhD and, they, and they're not sure. And they say, well, I'm just going to get both. And I'm thinking, well, that's kind of not really the reason to get both. I mean, you want to be, you want to get both because <laughs> you want to do clinical research and you want to do, you know, have all the levers to, to bring that up together. So how much time do you do clinic work and how much time do you do research and how challenging is it? Well, first, I will mention that that's exactly why I got both. <laughs> <laughs> someone who can't make up their mind okay um, all right uh, and, and it ended up well and so I, I wouldn't say that that's necessarily a bad path but yes if you can decide ahead of time what you want to be then it's a lot more efficient to you know go after the md or go after the phd okay <laughs> but, but that's exactly why i did it i figured hey i'm an engineer i have no idea what i want to do or which one of these fields i'm going to end up in I may as well do this MD PhD program, which is free. In fact, they're going to pay me to go to school. And the worst thing that happens is I get a few years of free education out of this. Um, you get a PhD and then uh, <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, that's true. That is true. You're hedging your bets in some sense and you're, you're getting, yeah. Yeah. Versus if you're going to pay a lot of money for medical school, you better be dang sure you want to be a doctor. <laughs> that's true. That's a good point. But, 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 you know, that aside, um, I am so happy uh, being a clinician scientist and you don't necessarily need an MD PhD. There are brilliant MDs doing good research and brilliant PhDs doing medically relevant translational research. Um, but for me, the ability to see patients in clinic, you know, this morning, right? I had my DBS clinic this morning um, and take what I know about brain circuits and have that in the back of my head as I'm seeing these patients and they're describing their problems to me. Um, one, that the patients are telling me where the research needs to go, right? The patients told me we want focus ultrasound to work better, right? And so I think that connection to the patients directly informs my research. It tells me where the clinical problems are and tells me what I need to go after. Um, and then we're just at the point because the, the dream of, of most clinician scientists is yeah, okay, the patients will drive my research, but what you really want and what I want by the end of my career, and I think we're getting there, is that my research feeds back on um, informing my patients and that um, soon I will see a patient in clinic and deliver a treatment that wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the research. Okay. Um, and and yeah. I think um, 
you know, once you've achieved that, then you've got full circle. The patients yeah. are informing the research and the research is directly informing your clinical care. Yeah. Um, and that's when the two make a lot of sense together. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, a, that's a great answer as far as that's concerned. So, I mean, how do you see this going? And, and so this is our pretty much our last question. Um, but uh, yeah, what, do you think that it will advance in terms of you know, how to practically get this into a clinic? Or do you think it will increase in sophistication? Or, or I mean, obviously it will, but how, where do you see it like in 10 years? Do you think that clinics around the world will be using this or, or, or what? Yes, I, I think uh, 10 years, you know, where we're going is we're going to be mapping individual symptoms to specific circuits. It's not going to be diagnoses. It's going to be symptoms. And a given patient will come in, and, and I, I might not even care what their diagnosis is. I'll just say, okay, you've got tremor and anxiety and a little bit of this. And we're going to map each one of those symptoms. We know where the circuits are. We're going to map them in you to see exactly where the circuits are in you. And here is the intersection of symptom A, symptom B, and symptom C. Aha. This is exactly the spot where we think we need to stimulate to make this symptom better. So let's start with a non-invasive form of stimulation. Let's hit an accessible node on the surface of the brain, see if that works. If it does, then maybe we move forward with a DBS electrode, or ideally we just say, aha, we know exactly where the circuits are. Here's the spot. You go in an MRI scanner, we burn a tiny microscopic hole right there and your symptoms are better. Um, and that, that's where I believe the field is going. That's, so that's actually really, so it's really nice to, to hear that because you could actually look at an individual subject and it sort of bypasses in some sense right now, like the a holy grail of NIMH and a lot of places is sort of coming up with biomarkers. Um, and then you, you know, they claim, oh, there's such a small effect size of looking at you know, certain types of populations that you need huge end subjects and, or you know, multivariate analysis. But, but it seems like you're, you know, there's enough signal to noise to map networks and individuals. And, and it seems that uh, you're not trying to, you know, match to, to uh, you know, to, to diagnose something subtle that's like an incredibly small effect. You're just sort of looking at where, where uh, you know, based on the symptoms where the networks might overlap in some sense. And so you, it seems like I'm trying to elucidate, you know, where it seems like you're bypassing uh, the need for, for these massively large end data sets to produce these biomarkers, but you're more just mapping networks that you can see right there and, and uh, that are actionable in some sort of a, uh, uh, a practical way, kind of like mapping, a, you know, with MRI, you, you, you can see a lesion or, or whatever. Here you're mapping a network and you're trying to triangulate in some sense. Yeah, I'd say that the, the, the difference is that there's a lot of focus right now on biotypes, right? How many types of depression are there? How many types of Parkinson's are there? And the reason that they want to break, you know, depression into, into these biotypes is they believe that one biotype might respond to one type of intervention, another biotype. Would, so we're, we're kind of trying to skip that step. Yeah. And we're saying, hey, we, we don't care how many biotypes there are. Right. What we really care about is where do we need to administer our stimulation? Yes. And so we, we haven't tried to biotype patients. We tried to map individual symptoms with the idea that different patients will have different symptoms. Yeah. Um, and that there can be an infinite number of biotypes um, because these symptoms can all map to different circuits. And in the end, we, we want something that is directly translatable into how we're going to administer our therapy and the biotypes might be that, but they might not be. And, and, but when you map out symptoms to circuits where you know that if you intervene on this circuit, you help the symptom, 
that is, is for me clinically directly actionable yes. um, to, to get patients better. Yeah. And it, it seems obvious that the likelihood for success will be, will probably be greater in, 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 in many regards. So that's, that's awesome. All right. Well, we covered a lot of ground. Yeah. Thank you very much. I mean, there's all kinds of other things to talk about, but, uh, but this was great. I appreciate you coming on and, and wish you the best of luck in the future. I look forward to eventually seeing you at, whenever, whenever we have meetings again, uh, uh, that start up again. So thanks. Uh, thank you so much, Peter. It was great. Okay. All right. Thank you.